When I was in high school, I had, uh, when I was a senior, um, I had a, I went to this small Christian school, and the way it worked was uh, my first three years of high school, while everybody else took a, a PE, I took a class because I played sports, and so my PE, I didn't need to do PE. So by the time senior year came around, I only had three classes. Um, and so I was hardly ever at school. I was barely a student my senior year. Uh, and during that year, we had this new teacher who was 22. So I was 18. Um, my best friend was 19. He was one of those kids that just missed the cutoff, you know, by a day or two. So he was like a year older than all of us. And then this teacher was this 22-year-old guy that we basically at some point could have gone to school with, you know. And he was super cool. He was like our soccer coach and, he, you know, he was a younger, cool dude. Anyway, because of the age, you know, we were so close. Even though we were students, he was a teacher. We all kind of became actual friends and uh, sometimes we would all hang out after soccer practice or whatever. He kind of became one of the guys. Um, and uh, because we were friends, though, we found out me and my buddy Ian, we found out this teacher was secretly dating one of the other teachers nobody else knew, right? We found out kind of on accident, uh, just because we're friends. And, you know, uh, they were both adults, whatever. And they tried to keep it secret, and they did everything. I'm sure the, ad, the administration knew. I don't know. But anyway, we found out these two teachers were dating. Now, this guy wasn't actually even a teacher of mine. I never had him for a class. He taught the younger kids and stuff. Um, but one day, the, the woman who he was dating was a teacher of mine. And one day we were in her English class or whatever it was, and he came in and he asked for something, just like normal teacher stuff. Can I borrow a stapler or something like that? And then me and my idiot friend went, oh, you know. Okay, so uh, here's what happened. Me and my friend stepped way over the line because we were friends with this guy, right? We completely, yeah, we completely blew it. Uh, when we first met this teacher, uh, we knew our place. He was the teacher, we were the student. But what happened is uh, we decided, well, because we're friendly with this guy, we hang out sometimes and he's nice to us, we're going to, this has changed, right? So we've crossed the line. Uh, so what happened to that day? Well, first we got yelled at. <laughs> he pulled us out of class and he yelled at us in the hallway. After the yelling, we got a talking to. <laughs> After the talking to, we gave him an actual apology, right? Not the student teacher, fine, I'm sorry apology, but like we felt terrible and he was our buddy and we gave him a real apology and then we graduated and then we got to be friends again, <laughs> right? Uh, what happened though was, you know, the little friend, the friendship that we developed with this guy made us think we were something that we weren't, made us think we were more than student teacher, right? We kind of elevated ourselves. Some, my point is, it's kind of a stupid story, it's funny, I guess, but... My point is, this is sometimes exactly what we do with God, right? We come to him one way in humility and desperation, but then let's be real, right? On the inside, we're all sinners, and the chief effect of sin, right? The main thing that sin does is it says to you, you're it. You are what it's all about. Your faith is great. God should be so proud of you because of your faith, and everybody else around you, they should be more like you right? You're so fantastic. You're such a good dude, you know? That's what our sin does. And what happens is then we sort of forget our place. We forget where we started. We forget the desperation that we came to the Lord in. We forget what's really going on. And our sin 
take something as beautiful as our faith and our church practice and the things we do for the kingdom, and it twists it into something ugly. When we come to the Lord in faith, right, like thousands of people did that first Pentecost that we celebrate, you know, because today's Pentecost Sunday. When we first sort of come in to the Lord with faith, that faith is supposed to change us. It's not supposed to leave us the way we are. That's true. But our faith is not supposed to, I don't know, it's not supposed to elevate us and make us think we're more important than we are, right? Our faith should do two things. Our faith should humble us. As our faith humbles us, it should change our relationship with each other, and it changes our view of where we stand in the pecking order with God. And we're going to see that through these kind of three, uh, these couple of sections here in the book of Luke that don't seem super related, but the key theme is sort of what faith does to us, right? So we'll read these together. The first, we'll start in verse 17. We're just going to walk through this. He said to his disciples, sorry, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe is the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So, temptations are sure to come. I love this part of Jesus' teaching, because what's going on here is he's being very realistic about the world he's living in. Right? His disciples are... When you come to Jesus, you're not whisked away into some sort of sinless utopia, and now you're perfect and you're better. You know, um, I think I've told that like anecdote before about Spurgeon was arguing with. There was a guy who uh, believed in was it called perfectionism that even eventually Christians we can be perfect. You know, and this guy was telling Spurgeon he had achieved perfection. So Spurgeon, what did he do? He hit him with his cane or something. The guy, like, came at Spurgeon, started swearing and stuff, and he was like, hey, I thought you were perfect, you know? I love that story. Right? We're not, this doesn't happen. We live in a world of sin, and we're going to keep sinning because, right, original sin. We know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned. They ate the apple or the apricot or the grapes or whatever it was hanging off of that tree. And they told God, I don't want you to be the Lord, I want to be the Lord. And it changed them. It changed humanity. And they got booted out of the garden. They got kicked out, they're outside the garden, then they had a couple of kids. And that sin nature was passed on to those kids. And if you don't believe me, read the very next story in the Bible, right? Cain and his brother Abel, you know, they offer sacrifices. Cain's, God accepts Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. Cain gets all mad and he, you know, hits his head, brother in the head with a rock or whatever. You know, the very next thing we see is sin happening in the world. And then the sin gets so bad that God you know, you know, he makes a backup and he reformats the hard drive, right? He starts over with Noah. It's just like, we're wiping this whole thing here and we're going to start over. And then you think, well, maybe then it, it went better. And then you read the story of Abraham, the father of faith, constantly not acting out of faith, right? The story of sin passes on and we live in this world. And when we come to Jesus, what happens is we're not automatically just the sin is wiped out of our lives. You know, the New Testament can um, constantly talks about this struggle, this war that we have with sin. And so Jesus is being realistic here. Temptations to sin are sure to come. He says, but woe to the one through who they come. You don't want to be the person who's tripping up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? He says, especially here uh, at the end there, these little ones. Now, I think in our minds, most of us just read that and automatically assume, oh, he's talking about children. The context of this, though, is probably he's talking about new believers. Young, he's using it as a, like a picture. 
right? And so these new believers to sin. Well, how do, how is it that we, how is it that we do this? How do you cause people to sin? Well, there's a couple of ways. Um, There's uh, teaching sin. Something that's sinful is not sinful. I'm telling people that. That's bad. That's that's a, that's a rough place to be. Um, there's just sort of the subtle ways we encourage people to sin. As we sin, we encourage, you know, hey, it's not so bad. Come along with me uh, in this sin. Um, I would say, I would add to this, another way that we cause people to sin is by not encouraging younger believers in the things of faith. Somebody comes to faith, okay, I did my job, now I'm done. Discipleship is a whole process. And by ignoring your responsibility to disciple younger believers— right? A lot of that is causing people to sin. And so Jesus, like, uses this picture of extreme consequences. As people sin, you don't want to be the one who causes these little ones to sin, because it would be better for you if a a millstone, so, I mean, that's just, think of the biggest round stone that you could find, right? It's like, almost like a, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoon. You tie a millstone to a chain around your neck and then get thrown into the ocean, right? It's almost comical, because nobody could pick that up and throw in the ocean, right? Um, So he's saying it would be better for that to happen. He's using this extreme, you really, really, really don't want to be the person that causes somebody else to sin. He keeps going, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So he says, if your brother sins, the Greek word there with brother, when you see this in the New Testament, is actually this word that literally does mean brother. Like, it's used for like a male sibling, right? But it's also one of those words that's kind of wider that just also can mean sibling, right? It's like our English word guys. In some contexts, it means a bunch of males, and in some contexts, it just means you guys. You know, like if I'm preaching, and I was like, you guys really need to come to dinner on Sunday. All the girls didn't just go, huh, I don't have to go. Right, so anyway... When he says this, what he means here is your brothers and sisters, even though the word in Greek is literally brothers, right? Your brothers and sisters in Christ is sort of the context here. And what he says is brothers and sisters in Christ are going to sin against each other. Again, he's being realistic. Um, I like that joke, you know, about if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Right? Because the truth is, there are no perfect churches. Because churches are filled with broken and fallen and sinful people who've been redeemed, but we're still struggling. We still have that war with sin. And a lot of times, that war with sin is going to come out in how we deal with each other. Now, sin is going to happen in church. We're going to sin against each other. Doesn't mean that's not an excuse, right? I mean, that's not, hey, you should, you should really try to go sin against your brothers and sisters in the porch. That's not what we're out for. But we're realistic, it's going to happen. How do we handle it when it does happen? Look at this four-step four process Jesus gives. Here's the first one, rebuke. Now, if you have a real understanding of what sin is, you hate it. You hate sin. It's, it's going against the things of God. It's going against the heart of God and the will of God. And we, we don't like sin. We don't like the things that God has said these things are sinful because they're destructive and they're bad. And so, if you really believe that, that sin is not just some arbitrary set of rules that God came up with to ruin a good time, but that God has said, this is the way to thrive and to live, 
then when your brother or sister in Christ sins, you don't want to let them just sit and live in that sin. Right? You want to do something about it. Right? It's like, um, wasn't there a movie? I feel like a Kevin James movie, maybe. I don't know. Where the guy's wife was cheating on him and the friend found out. And the whole movie was, should the friend tell his friend that his wife is cheating? And I don't even remember what happens. But sin, like rebuking sin is kind of a situation like that, right? Like you know something and you need to share it with this person. You have a responsibility to this person to be like, hey, this situation in your life, this is not great. I guess a better analogy would be like a doctor refusing to tell a patient that they have cancer or something because they would just want to be a nice guy, right? You're a terrible doctor, (laughs) And you're a terrible brother and sister in Christ. If you know there's some sort of open sin that your brother and sister in Christ is living in, and you don't rebuke. But here's the key. We don't get this in this verse, but we see this all over the New Testament. This rebuking is not a, hey, I'm better than you, rebuke. This is rebuking in love, right? Like, okay, so I'll tell you, I think, I don't know if I've told this before, but a long time ago, uh, somebody from my old church, um, when I was very young, I think I'd just become the youth pastor or something. I was 20. Uh, Heard a rumor about me. It wasn't true. (laughs) But this person heard the rumor that I was doing something I wasn't doing. And so this woman, who was an older woman, I mean, at this point she was probably 60s, uh, called me and said, hey, John, can I take you out to lunch? And I said, sure. And she sat me down and she gently rebuked me for this thing I wasn't even doing. The fact that I wasn't doing it doesn't really matter the story. The point is, the way this woman handled it, I'll never forget. Everything about the way that she was talking to me was not the like, hey, you're going to be in trouble for this or whatever. She was genuinely concerned about me, and everything that she said was like with a heart and an attitude of love. And I've seen that happen in in other ways when I did sin, but I just, even though in that story, it's not something I did. I loved her response to thinking I had sinned, like the way she handled it. And when I explained what was really going on, she was great about it. And um, that's, that's the heart. If you're rebuking somebody in sin and love is not the motive, let's be real, you just need to shut up and leave them alone, <laughs> right? If there's some other motive, I want you to just not have any part of that. So the first thing is we rebuke in love. Step two, hopefully, when we confront our brothers and sisters in Christ about some sort of sin, in their lives, hopefully what happens is, in an ideal situation, is repentance. This is how you should respond when this happens to you. If you are, are in some sort of a sin and somebody confronts you about it, your heart should be like that of King David. You guys know that story with Bathsheba? So King David, this is what he does. He sees this lady, he's creeping this lady, watching her take a bath. Step one, you're wrong, dude. He's the king, so he goes and gets his soldiers to come over, have her come over. She doesn't really have a choice in the whole thing. He sleeps with her. She's married, strike two. He says, hey, I want to marry this lady when he finds out she's pregnant. So he tries to cover, or first he tries to cover the whole thing up by getting her husband to come home and pretend he slept with her. The husband didn't, it's a long story. So then he gets the husband killed, strike, I don't know, at this point, five or six. Then he lies about the whole thing. He marries and he covers her up, uh, covers it up. So then Nathan the prophet comes by, and he's like, hey, I have a case because you're the judge of the whole country. You know, I have this case for you. There's this guy. He's rich. He's got everything. He has this neighbor who's broke and only has one lamb. So the, the rich guy had some friends over for dinner. He went over, he stole the guy's lamb, and he cooked it for dinner. And now this guy has nothing, and this dude still has everything. And at first, David's real mad. Put him to death. You know, like, he goes to the extreme. 
And Nathan goes, hey, dummy, you're the guy. Now, this could have gone one of two ways. David could have said, no, put you to death. <laughs> right? He could have dug in, but he didn't. What did he do? He went and he wrote Psalm 51. You know, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, I've sinned against you and you alone, O Lord. Right? He repented, and it's a beautiful story of repentance. And it's a great model for us when we're confronted with sin. Because we know, you're not perfect. This just in, you sin. You suck. <laughs> that's the whole gospel, right? Is You're terrible. And that's the starting point of the gospel. And so, as redeemed people, we don't pretend like we're better than we are. When we're confronted with sin, we repent and, uh, you know, we try to make reconciliation happen. Step three in this process then, if somebody actually repents, is forgiveness happens. Now, uh, the <clears throat> our motive as believers, with other believers, with this idea of forgiveness, is not, it's a commandment and now you have to do it. Okay? Jesus commanded that you forgive people, so you must forgive people. Let me give you the motivation. Um, I'm actually not going to read this whole, the, you know, the, this parable. I was, I'll just kind of recap it. So there's a parable Jesus tells, and it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And here's what happens in this parable. There's a guy. He borrows a bunch of money from some nobleman or whatever, like a lot of money, like a billion dollars, like, as if somebody would lend. But it's kind of an extreme story. He's like, I have this great business idea. I just need a billion-dollar startup loan. We'll get going. Okay, you have to pay this billion dollars back. He says, sure, signs the paperwork. Spends the billion dollars. Business fails. Camps pay him back. Now, this is not a culture with bankruptcy court. That's not how this worked. In this culture, if you owed somebody money and you didn't pay it, this, the logic of this doesn't make a lot of sense, but this is what they did. They would throw you in jail until you could pay it off, which meant... and. You know, and in some areas, they would torture you in jail until you either died or paid it off. Or they would sell you into slavery and sell your whole family into slavery, that sort of thing. Right? It's a brutal culture. So this guy shows up. He says to the nobleman or whatever, dude, I can't pay you back. Sorry. Just, you know, and the guy goes, you know, I'm supposed to throw you into jail, billion dollars. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to forgive you. So the dude is just ecstatic. Oh man, that's so awesome. A billion dollars I've just been forgiven. He walks outside. On his way home from being forgiven a billion dollars, he bumps into some guy that owes him like a thousand dollars, which is still a lot of money. Right? It's not no small, it's no chump change. He says, hey, where's my thousand dollars? And the guy's like, oh, I don't have it yet. Sorry, man. So he calls over the guards. Arrest this man. He owes me a thousand dollars. Put him in jail and torture him and do all that bad stuff to him. Well, anyway, the nobleman finds out he goes, I just forgave you a billion dollars. You can't forgive that guy a thousand dollars. Seriously? So then he, I think in the end he has him thrown in prison. And, you know. The point of the parable is if you really understand how much you've been forgiven, you're going to be a person of forgiveness. And that's our motivation, not to just blindly follow some command. But because we have been forgiven a billion dollars, your sins against the Lord are billions of dollars worth of sins. People sinning against you because you're not an infinitely good and perfect being, right? Okay, it's bad, but it's only $1,000, right? It's, it's nothing compared to what you've been forgiven. So, of course, you're going to have this heart of forgiveness. And it's beautiful in church when that happens, when real, actual forgiveness and reconciliation happens. Step four of the process is 
rinse and repeat. All right, do it over again. Look, uh, if he sins against you seven times in a day, right, seven is not a literal number. It doesn't mean on the eighth time, I'm going to punch you in the face. Right? And the eighth time you sin against me, you're, I'm in a wallet. You're really going to get it. That's not how this works. Seven in the Bible is sort of a, a number they use to talk about completeness. So we see this in like Revelation. With the seven spirits of God, that doesn't mean there's seven Holy Spirits. It means the perfect, complete Holy Spirit of God, right? Um, so uh, let me read you these two quotes here. Wait, let me go. Where is it? Uh, this guy, Leon Morris, said this, From the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense in one day must cast doubt on the genuineness of a sinner's repentance. But uh, that's not the believer's concern. His business is forgiveness. Right? So it's not your job necessarily to be the judge of that person. It's your job to forgive people. And if somebody is struggling and they come to you, I mean, think about how hard this would be. Right, Paul, if I was over at your house for dinner and I stole your wallet, then I came back the next day. Paul, man, I'm so sorry. I just, when I was a kid, I used to steal everything and old habits popped back up and I stole your wallet again. Paul says, great. You want to get something to eat? I say, sure. Then I steal his wallet again. <laughs> then I come back on Tuesday. Hey, Paul, man, I'm so sorry. I just, I can't shake the steal in your wallet. Saturday comes along. Sorry, Paul, I stole your wallet again. <laughs> Right? That's the idea. It's not Paul's job to, <laughs> right? Paul's job is to forgive, right? I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous situation, but you know what I mean. It's our job to forgive. Another, one of the church fathers, um, oh, wait, I didn't change the name in that other slide, but anyway, Cyril of Alexandria said this, we should imitate those whose business it is to heal our bodily diseases um, and who do not care, sorry, and who do not care for a sick person only once or twice, but as often as he happens to become ill. This is a great analogy. We're the doctors of spiritual forgiveness, right? If somebody comes to a doctor and is sick, the doctor does what he can to heal. If he comes back a week later and he's still sick, the doctor does what he can to heal. At no point does a doctor say, I'm not doing this anymore. You've had cancer five times already, <laughs> right? You've reached your cancer limit with me. That's how we treat people because sin is a sickness, and it, it rots away the inside of us. And we need to do what we can to help people remove that sickness from their life. And part of that is forgiveness. Now, have you ever had to forgive somebody over and over again? Like multiple times? It's tough if you've ever had a situation like this. And you can see the disciples struggle with this. And that's the context of this next section that people read completely out of context. Okay? So this section, the apostles hearing what Jesus said, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The disciples always say the wrong thing in almost every situation in the Gospels, right? I always kind of joke, Peter was like the first person with uh, the diagnosed case of foot-in-mouth syndrome. Everything he says is wrong, uh, almost everything he says. Every now and again, he'll say something right, uh, but most of the time. Well, anyway, which is amazing, actually, because the, the New Testament, right, how all this stuff was written is because, like Luke, how did he know this story was because he sat down with Peter and Paul and all these guys, uh, Peter and probably Mark and different folks, and he heard these stories. So the disciples are the ones basically writing these books, and they still wrote, hey, we always said the wrong thing. I love that. They're very honest about who they are. This is one of those places where they seem to sort of say something smart, right? Jesus says, I need you to constantly be people of forgiveness, the disciples are introspective. They look inward, they look at themselves, and they go, uh-uh, it's not going to happen. 
<laughs> Lord, I need more faith, right? Because faith sees the gospel story for what it really is. And faith sees the, faith understands how much we've been forgiven. It understands the billion dollar debt that we've been forgiven, right? And so the context here is with this increase our faith, it's not just a blind increase our faith. I want to believe more. It's, I'm not going to be able to forgive people, Lord. I need more faith. So what does the Lord say? And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So looking at this daunting task of forgiveness, it's easy to say, well, I don't have enough faith for that. Right? But Jesus' answer kind of flips it. Look what Leon Morris again says this, the, the commentator guy. It's not so much a great faith in God that is required for this forgiveness stuff as it is a faith in a great God. So what happens here is Jesus moves the marker. He says it doesn't matter the amount of faith you have. It matters what the faith is in. And he says even a tiny little bit of faith in a very big and gracious and great God is enough faith to turn you into a forgiving person. And so the picture he uses is, you know, the mustard seed, right? And I feel like every pastor when I was growing up or whatever always was like, here's a mustard seed. And they brought one, you know, like, I don't, but I'll be honest, I don't know where to buy a mustard seed. So just pretend there's one right here. It's really little, right? It's small. That's the point. It's, and at, I think it went all the commentators. It's not really the smallest seed. Just, okay, you get the idea. <laughs> right? It's not rocket surgery. It's a small seed. And he says it grows into this thing that could even uproot a mulberry tree, which was like... Uh, Okay, I grew up in San Francisco. Let's be honest, I don't know about growing things in trees. But from what I read, the, the picture here was a mulberry tree had like a wide, extensive root system. So it, in our context, Jesus would have said, take a mustard seed and it could uproot a redwood tree. Because you know the redwood trees and the, the whole thing, right? And so he's saying your little amount of faith growing in your life is enough. That's what you need is even just, even just this much faith. All right, now, so that's kind of our first section. Let's go to the second section. This is this very weird story, this weird little teaching. Verse 7, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Would you rather not say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink? Okay, so here's the story. This is what Jesus says. Imagine you had a servant, a slave, which bothers people that Jesus uses slave imagery. But this was a very common thing in the first century. He's using the pictures from the things around him that people would understand to teach. In theology, we call this God like condescending. He comes down to where people are at the time. So without getting into a whole thing about Christianity and slavery today, we're not going to do that today. Jesus uses this imagery of a slave and a master. What he says is if you had a slave working out in the field and the slave... Uh, you know, finished his day, he was supposed to come in and then make you dinner before he eats. Not the other way around. He's not supposed to come in and have dinner with you. Now, one guy I was reading had a really good, like, illustration, I thought. He goes, this doesn't really make a lot of sense in our culture. Like, the force of this doesn't really hit. So his illustration was this. Imagine if you were at a restaurant, and the waitress came over and sat down with your family, and she said boy, I had a really long shift today. Now it's over. 
can I have some of your fries? And she just starts eating your food without, you know, without really asking or whatever. If that really happened to you somewhere, right, you would show up on Wednesday and you'd be like, let me tell you about this waitress. <laughs> let me tell you about this waitress I had at this restaurant. You wouldn't believe the audacity of this waitress and you'd tell us the whole story. It would be a big deal. Um, or imagine another one I thought of was like, imagine if you got a big Christmas bonus at work. I never had a real job, but I've seen that on TV. I think that's what happens, right? And so you get a Christmas bonus, and you've got your check, and you take it down to the bank, and you hand it to the bank teller, and the bank teller goes, whoa, that's a big bonus. Can I have some of it? Right? You'd be pretty, what? No. <laughs> Just put it in the bank, guy. Like, you're the bank teller. That would be crossing, and then the bank teller would probably get fired. That would be crossing this sort of norm that our society has. So the norm that Jesus is talking about in the story, we don't really do here in America like this. This is not how we do it. So uh, anyway, you get the story. So Jesus continues. He sort of explains. Does he thank the servant because he does what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So the next thing is, when the servant then goes and gets you dinner, Jesus says, do you say thank you? No, I was actually just watching this thing about Roman culture and they were saying, like one of the things, completely unrelated to studying for this, they were saying one of the things that you would never do in polite society is thank a slave, in front, especially in front of, like if you were throwing a Roman... Okay, so the thing I was watching was all about Roman parties and the weird rats and foods that they ate. Anyway, and they were talking about Roman... It's this lady who does this podcast. They were talking about, she was talking about Roman culture. And that was one of just kind of the offhand comments she made. You know, when you would never thank a slave and, and especially not in front of people. And so that's what Jesus is referencing here. Do, would you thank the slave? No. The idea is the servant, the slave, doesn't expect a thank you. He knows his place in the pecking order. Now, tie this into what Jesus has been talking about. From our perspective, faith says this. I've been saved by grace and grace alone. Even though I deserve wrath and salvation, I get redemption. And so when I obey the Lord... What's, what's not happening is all of a sudden now I'm putting him into my debt. That's not the way it works. We, faith helps you to understand who you are in relationship to God the Creator, the God of Isaiah 6, right, where Isaiah falls down and can't believe at the throne room, or in um, Revelation 4 when John just falls apart at the sight of Jesus, right? We know our place. That's kind of the point here. Um, and he, Jesus uses this kind of odd story about a servant and a master, to make that point. All right, now the third kind of story, the third section. So we're doing three sections today. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So Luke makes this point, and I've mentioned this almost every week, over and over and over again, that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about this more later, but the, the cross being intentional, right? He's heading for redemption. He's heading for the cross. And he's moving from village to village, from town to town. And at this point, he's still a massive draw, right? He's the Beatles coming to the U.S. in 60, whatever that was. I don't know, 61 or something. You know, with the people mobbing the Beatles on the plane, that sort of, or getting off the plane. That's Jesus when he's going around. Now, as he entered the village, he was... Oh, wait. Uh, yeah, so he's going around. Uh, as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. Oh, wait, sorry, let me jump back and say one more thing here. Samaria and Galilee, right? He's going through Samaria and Galilee. Um, Luke 
is one of the gospel writers that doesn't super in this gospel care about the geography exactly. If you remember, I said he's actually kind of reorganized the chronology of some of this stuff. Um, the point he says there is because some of these characters we're about to meet, the lepers we're about to meet, are Samaritans, and one of them is, and the rest are Jews from Galilee. All right, as he entered this village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. So we've talked about leprosy before in the Gospel of Luke. It's a horrible... There were different forms of leprosy kind of in the New Testament times, in the Old Testament times, but almost always it was fatal. The Old Testament has a lot of rules about leprosy uh, and this culture and everything. Basically, if you, had, if you had leprosy in this time, you were separated from everybody in society. You were kicked out of society. And if you were around people at all, you had to cry out that you were a leper so everybody could kind of get away. So as we read this verse, it makes sense, right? He entered this village. So outside the village, he bumps into these lepers because they're not allowed to go into the village, who stood at a distance. So they stood at a distance. This is exactly what they're supposed to do. They're not allowed to be around people because they don't want to spread the leprosy. Verse 13, and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Okay, so I love the, the address. Jesus, Master, they know who, you know, Jesus is the Lord. They know who he is. They're, they're expressing what they've heard. Have mercy on us. What they're asking for is healing. Now, like I said, the life of a leper was horrible. It was basically you get kicked out of society. You have to struggle. If you have no family to bring you food, you probably live in some sort of a leper colony camp outside of town. Do you guys remember that from Ben-Hur, the leper camp? When I was a kid, I was real confused about that because they opened, do you guys remember Ben-Hur? Anybody seen that movie? They open up the cage where the mother and sister were, the Roman soldiers. He goes, oh no, they're lepers. And as a kid, I was like, they turned into leopards? Like I was real confused about that for a lot of you. We only had two VHS tapes when I was a kid. We had Aladdin and Ben-Hur. So I saw it like a billion times before somebody explained to me, not leopards, lepers. Anyway, so, <laughs> but it, right after that scene, they, t- they go to the leper, Ben-Hur, whatever his name is, goes to the leper colony, you know. It's kind of like that, though, right? Your, li- your life is terrible, and your body is painfully falling apart until you die. It's a horrible life. And so somewhere, we've read about already Jesus touching, do you remember when he healed the other leper? And it specifically says Jesus reached out and he touched him. And that's probably the first person that had touched this leper in years, in a long time. And so somehow that story got around the leper colonies, I'm guessing. Do you hear about the, this guy who's traveling around, touching lepers in the face, and they're being healed? So these lepers find out Jesus is coming to town. They hang out outside. They wait for him. You know, like the, outside, the people wait outside the concert for the band to go to the tour bus. Jesus walks by, and they shout out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You know, do for us what you've done for those other people. I love the idea of mercy, too, because they're not saying we deserve this healing. Mercy is like the undeserved something. All right, verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. And they went and were cleansed. So this time, Jesus doesn't touch anybody. He just shouts at them from across the way. Yeah, okay. Go show yourselves to the priests. Now, there were rules about this in the book of, I think it's Leviticus. I didn't actually look it up. It might be Deuteronomy. But anyway, for the leper... If you're cured of leprosy, you're supposed to go to the priest and he does this whole inspection thing, looks over your skin and, you know, and then he says, you're, you're clean now. 
From what I read, though, was a lot of the rabbis at this time had written stuff like, I don't even know why we have these rules, it never happens. Like, what a waste of paper. Nobody gets healed from leprosy until Jesus comes along. Now, it says, this is important too. Uh, They went and they were cleansed. So not just healed, right? If you were here in the summer when we did a whole thing, talked about um, the Old Testament system of clean and unclean. And uh, we did a little thing on it last year. But anyway, the idea was there were states that you were in. It, It wasn't necessarily sinful and not sinful, but it's just a state of purity that meant you were allowed to do the activities of worship in the temple and different things. And so there were a lot of things, mostly related with blood and death um, and bodily fluid, you know, life and death and that sort of stuff, that would make you unclean. And then you would have to take time and you'd have to do this cleansing and this purity thing. Then you were put into a state of spiritually clean, you could do the stuff at the temple. So not only were these guys healed from their leprosy, which seems to us like the big deal, but they're clean, which means they get to be back part of society. Right, they get to be brought back into the fold. This is a huge deal for somebody who lives in a community and in an era where they weren't individual, uh, individualistic like we are. Being part of the community was a massive deal. And you do not want to get kicked out of a community like this. And that's what happened to them. So they're cleansed. Verse 15, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So he's praising God with a loud voice, right? Think about this joy that can't be held in, right? Like me tonight when the Warriors win. Boy, if they lose tonight, you guys don't want to be at my house. (laughs) But you should all come anyway, (laughs) right? But this is going to be me when the Warriors win. Just the, you, you know what I mean? That joy that can't, like that, almost like a yelp when you're so excited that you just can't hold it inside. That's this guy. He's praising God with a loud voice. Then he humbled himself by falling at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. He knows his place. He knows he doesn't deserve this. Sorry, he doesn't deserve this healing. And then I love this little detail, Luke. He was a Samaritan. Right, you guys know, we did the Good Samaritan a while ago, but um, you know the history of the Samaritans was um, back in the day, the Assyrians in the north uh, took the, when Israel was split into two kingdoms during the Old Testament time, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Uh, there was an enemy above Israel called Assyria. They came in, they took all, uh, like they conquered the northern 10 tribes, took all those people, most of those people, scattered them. That, that, those guys disappeared. Then in the south, they lasted a little bit longer, but then an enemy from, what would that be, the east, Babylon came in, destroyed the kingdom of Judah. They took most of the people to Babylon into exile. They eventually came back. During the time when they were in exile and that sort of stuff, there were some people from the north and the south that kind of got left behind. And what they did was, against the law of Moses, they intermarried with the kingdom, the people around them, which was kind of the point of the exile, was this is how we get rid of people groups. We make them part of Babylon, part of Assyria, and they just sort of morph into us, and then they disappear. So some of those people sort of kept their Jewish identity, but not really. And that's where the Samaritans came from. And they started their own temple, they created their own system as like the the diet version of the Jew- Jerusalem religion, you know, is like not, or the Safeway version, right? Not quite the same thing, but similar. Um, and so these Jews and the Samaritans, they really hated each other. And Luke is constantly showing us that the way the kingdom of God works is upside down. 
The people on the bottom end up on the top. The people that you wouldn't expect, those are the people that receive grace. We're going to talk about this more in a few weeks. So I just love that little note. Now, he was a Samaritan. Because anybody reading this story, if you were Jewish in the first century, what? What's Luke obsessed with these Samaritans for? All right, and then the last verse here, the last two verses, three verses. Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where is the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, so there's a story in the Old Testament. Um, there was a, a king, uh, sorry, a general named uh, from, oh, now I'm blanking on the, he was either Assyria or Assyria, I don't remember, um, Naaman. And this guy had a Hebrew slave girl back in wherever he was from, and he got leprosy, and nothing was working. And at one point, the girl says to him, hey, there's this prophet, Elisha, in Israel, he could probably do something about this. So Naaman shows up, right? And the king sends him to Elisha's house. And he goes to Elisha, hey, heal me of this thing, I heard you're the guy. So Elisha goes, okay, go take a bath in the Jordan a couple of times, you'll be fine. Naaman gets all bent out of shape. The Jordan, that river stinks. Have you seen our rivers back home? Like, I could have just bathed, you know. I'm not doing that, that's stupid. And then somebody says to him, I think it might have been the girl, she says to him, is it really that hard? Just dunk seven times, man. It's like, what do you got to lose? Worst thing is you get a little wet. He goes, okay, so he does it. He comes out the last time completely cured of the leprosy. He goes back to Elisha's house, right? Who he had just said, you're not worthy, all this stuff. He goes back humble. He's like, wow, I'm going to follow your God now. I'm so grateful. He's a completely different guy. Let me give you all this stuff. I'm totally rich. Elisha goes, no, 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 I don't want your crap, right? And then anyway, his servant steals some of the stuff and then he gets leprosy. It's a crazy story. Uh, But the point is, everybody in this culture would have known that story of Naaman. Healed of leprosy, comes back to say thank you. Healed of leprosy, like that is in their minds. So Jesus, only one guy comes back. Jesus is almost saying, don't they all know this story? This is a famous story. Don't you know what you're supposed to do when somebody heals you of leprosy? It doesn't, doesn't happen a lot, right? It's a pretty easy uh, pattern here. Healed of leprosy? Hey, go back and say thank you. So he's kind of shocked. None of these other guys did. Then he looks at the Samaritan guy and he says this phrase, your faith has made you well. Now, in, that's one of those things that's kind of hard to translate in, this is a really good translation, has made you well. Because in Greek, the word is the same word that gets used for salvation. Healing, salvation is kind of the same word. And so the idea here is there's two layers to this. Your faith has made you well because you don't have leprosy anymore. But also, your faith has saved you. Jesus means both of those things with sometimes a double meaning like that is really hard to translate into another language, right? So this is what he says, though. Your faith has saved you. This guy has not just been healed from leprosy, right? He's been healed from sin. He's been, he's been healed from, like, you know, the, the, rotting, um, uh, the rotting disease that sin is. He's received this saving faith. And I love that he's the guy you wouldn't expect, because that's how Luke always does it. He's the guy you wouldn't expect. Okay, So that's our story, right? That's our three sections. Now, these three sections do kind of seem hardly related, but if you take faith as the string, all right, just kidding. If you take faith as the string that sort of runs through this whole section, we see three really important truths about faith. 
So let me give them to you now, and then we're done. First one is this. Faith doesn't put God into your debt. So when you come to God in faith, right, like the story, this comes from the story of the unworthy servants there in the middle, right? When, uh, you know, the, the, the servant coming in doesn't expect to sit down and have dinner with the master and the master say thank you. You know, sometimes we act like our faith is doing God a favor. This is how religion has always worked in uh, the ancient world especially. Uh, the way the gods were just sort of like a little bit above people, most of them, right? They weren't like transcendent creator, Yahweh God like we serve. But you had gods like Baal, Baal, um, you know, you had the Greek gods, the Roman gods. And the idea was this. You would go and you would offer a sacrifice and then the god owed you something. All right, God, I'm going to kill this bull. You really like bulls, apparently. So now you owe me rain and crops and whatever. Right? It was like this transactional relationship. So if I do this, now, God, you're in debt to me. This is the elder brother from the prodigal son that we just talked about. I worked for you, Dad. You owe me. Right? This is the wrong attitude. The underlying assumption here is that this person doesn't understand grace at all. Grace is completely and utterly undeserved favor. And until you really understand it's completely undeserved, nothing you have done, you won't really get this. You won't really understand grace. That's the key. The heart of grace is that absolutely nothing you can do puts God kind of in your debt. All right, here's the second thing. Faith puts you in debt to God. So not only, okay, but I'll say this, sort of. (laughs) You don't want to take this too far. What I don't mean with this, I just wanted to use the word debt in all of these. What I don't mean is that somehow, now because you've been saved, you have some sort of a debt that you have to slowly pay back. That's not true. That's not exactly what I mean. Um, Faith puts you in the, uh, I've been forgiven a billion dollars kind of debt, right? Where, um, like this is the story of the 10 lepers. This guy came back and he fell at Jesus' feet. You know, I can't believe it. I've got this saving faith and I've been healed of this leprosy, right? That's the attitude of somebody who has faith, is they, they understand how much they've been forgiven and they understand who, who God is in relation to who they are, right? And that you are going to spend eternity, which is just unfathomable amount of time, worshiping and thanking God and falling down at his feet because of the debt that you've been forgiven, right? And you're never going to be able to pay it back. You're just going to spend eternity being the leper from this story, the Samaritan leper, right? So faith, religion, runs to Jesus and says, you know, I want something from you. That was the other nine guys. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted something from Jesus. And when they got the something from Jesus, they didn't need him anymore, I don't need to go back and thank him. I already got the thing I needed from him. He was just a means to an end. Nobody there, Jesus, he didn't say to any of those guys, your faith has saved you. He only said, he said, go, you're healed. Great. But only one of the guys came back and Jesus said, your faith saved you. The reason is because we see this guy's attitude is completely different. He runs back to Jesus and he says, you're the point. I want you. Right? That's what's going on. Not just the healing I get from you, but you. You're the point. And then here's the third idea. 
Faith also then puts you in debt to one another. Right? So try and follow me here. Faith is about believing the gospel. And the gospel is the story of who you are and who Jesus is. And the more that you believe the gospel, the more that you're really in your heart, you're going to understand two things. The reality of the world we live in is that we're fallen and sinful, and we understand who we really are, and we understand how much we don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve grace, but we've been given it anyway. And as you understand those two things, I'm a wicked sinner who's been saved by a great God that completely transforms the way we deal with each other, especially within the family of God. Right? So our faith gives us a realistic picture of what church looks like, that we're all sinners who are going to hurt each other. We try not to, but we are. That's who we are at our core. But faith gives us the, this picture of how much we've been forgiven, and then that overflows into our relationship with one another. So that when I steal Paul's wallet seven times, he goes, yeah, you stole my wallet seven times, but I spit in the face of God Almighty. Of course I can forgive you. What you did to me is so much less than what I did to the Father. Right? And so this, this strand of faith really shows us who we are and, um, and the world that we live in. So I just want you to take these three ideas, think about this stuff, um, think about this, pray about this, pray about the way you forgive people in the church, pray about the way that sometimes you think your faith makes you, lifts you up in God's eyes and makes you better than you are. Right? Think about the humility that comes with faith and what that really does to your relationship vertically and your relationship with each other horizontally. Amen? All right, let's pray.